0: the j cut and this is the k cut my name is james i am a concert creator and stay-at-home husband i produce and release music under the alias boutique paul i'm one half of the prefer Not to say podcast i also write for films fatale about low-budget film and i'm here with my co-host
1: my name is andreas i'm the creator and one of the main writers of films fatale i love international cinema art house stuff but i like a little bit of everything as well
2: I'm Rachel, and I also write for Films Fatal. I love Lost Films, The Silent Era, International Film, and The Golden Age of Hollywood. And I was thinking about all this film history, and I thought, there have been so many movies made about filmmaking and about Hollywood. Maybe it's time we should talk about those. And then at the same time, in the second half, we can talk about the film history that inspires us. I mean, there are all kinds of strange and unusual stories. Maybe there are famous people we find interesting, or maybe some big innovations in Hollywood. So this episode is going to be all about film history.
1: Amazing. I love this type of stuff because if anybody's going to represent, you know, movie making better than anyone, it's actual filmmakers. So I have a very big soft spot for films about films, as I like to call them. And I can't wait to deep dive into this. I think it's a fantastic topic.
2: All right. So would you like to go first then?
1: Okay, I could do that. The film that I chose that for me and this might upset Jean-Luc Godard if he ever hears this. When I think of films about filmmaking, there are so many that I adore, but like I won't even like go down that list of like 700 films. I'm just going to name the one that always sticks out the most, and that's Day for Night by François Truffaut. Unfortunately, it's the film that did Break up one of the best bromances in all of film history with Truffaut and Goddard. Because Goddard actually labeled this film a complete and utter lie when it came to the filmmaking experience. Meanwhile, uh, Truffaut did not appreciate that and did not see the uh, tough love side of things, and they were never friends again until Truffaut passed away, which is really unfortunate. So uh, have either of you seen Day for Night? I have not. No,
2: all I know about it is that Valentina Cortez was so good in it that Ingrid Bergman apologized for winning over her at the Oscars in her speech.
1: She is fantastic. Uh, Day for Night is interesting because it's such a simple premise. It's, you know, this attempt to film this new motion picture, while the cast and crew kind of have their own stuff going on, whether you know they're forming romances, they're uh, having tribulations. Um, Truffaut actually is in the film as well as a director. So, you know, he's directing himself, directing. And there's a lot of like famous faces, like the young boy who was first in uh, Truffaut's debut, 400 Blows. Jean-Pierre Lowe is here. So it's so interesting in a metaphysical sense to see Truffaut working with the young child who's now blossomed into a new wave star. There's a lot of like winks to the audience. And I think one reason why I might have to disagree with Godard, who I feel like is coming from a good place, saying that this is a lie about the filmmaking experience, is because day for night which is a very interesting title for a film, in case you don't know what that is. It's when you uh, shoot during the daytime as with the illusion that you're shooting at nighttime. And you could also do the vice versa as well. I think it's a very appropriate name because it's a very illusionary film where you're not necessarily looking at the filmmaking process. You're looking at the dream version of the filmmaking process. And it's not a surreal film, but it's, you know, in the sense that this is the Hollywood version of Hollywood. So I feel like it's very appropriate. I don't necessarily think that this is Truffaut's way of saying, this is what it's like to make films, but this is what a film about making films would look like. And I think that's very appropriate. So it's not the real experience, but it's the cinematic experience about cinema. And I don't know, to me, there's one part at the end that I don't want to spoil. It's not really like a, like a big twist or anything. It's nothing of that sort, but it's, this um revelation of movie magic that just completely you know steals my heart every time i see it and it's nothing big it's not like a major plot point or anything but it's just one of those things where it's like this is what movie magic feels like this entire film and they set they saved my favorite instance of it for last and i just i adore this film
2: that's amazing
0: i'm gonna have to check that out
1: yeah, Day for Night is fantastic. It's uh, one of those films which I did really well, as you uh, said, as you said, Rachel. It did really well at the Academy Awards, where I won Best Foreign Language Film. But it also was accoladed by American audiences for a whole plethora of things. You know, Again, including uh, at the Oscars alone, Truffaut was nominated. So was Valentina Cortez for Supporting Actress. Um original screenplay, you don't see international film as doing this well, typically, especially back then. It's pretty successful. Did Cortez lose to Ingrid Bergman for um, Murder on the Orient Express? That's the one. It's so tough to say, though, because she stole that entire film,
2: uh, Bergman.
1: It's it's tough. It's a tough one.
2: The Oscars are always kind of (laughs) tough.
1: They are. They are. Uh, What's interesting, before we continue, though, is that it was – it won Best Language Film or Best Foreign Language Film, now known as International, the year before. So, in the seventy-three Academy Awards, so in the seventy-four, that's when it got all these other nominations for director, supporting actress, screenplay, la di da. So, but yeah, back then it was very weird, and s- similar stuff happened with the Battle of Algiers and some other international films. I feel like because. You could submit a film to be the front runner of your country, but when stuff is shown in theaters in America, that's when it got considered for all these other big awards. So technically it was a Juggernaut at the Academy Awards for two years in a row, which is pretty cool. That is neat. Yeah. That's day for night. Who wants to go next?
2: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I'm going to be talking about a movie about a movie that also had a weird Oscar thing and that it was released in 1942, but won for the year 1943. The film, can you guess? 42 and
1: 43. Hmm. The
2: famous, famous movie that won Best Picture in
1: 1943. Oh, uh, Casablanca.
2: Yes. So this is Curtiz, which is a Hungarian film about the filmmaker Michael Curtiz, who created Casablanca. And, direct. and it's interesting because Curtis made one of the finest movies of all time. And yet you rarely see him on the list of finest directors. So it's an interesting, cause it's not a Hollywood perspective, but it, it is deep, deep into Hollywood. Um, I think they do one very smart thing in that they focus a lot on the minor characters and actors from Casablanca. So you don't get any bad Bogart and Bergman imitations. You get the barest glimpse of them, but you do get storylines about Conrad Viet and S K Sakal. or It looks beautiful. It's very well shot. There's a really cool Bond-esque intro. They do very well with the historical context and the executive meddling. I don't know how accurate the details are. I think they got the general gist of it. And the actor who plays Curtis is good. I do think the character's underwritten. You don't get a great sense of who he is, and all the stuff with his personal life just falls flat. But in terms of talking about Hollywood, in terms of talking about how Casablanca, even though it was just another cog in the studio machine, it was it took on new importance with the war. It, it is very interesting. And they, they have a whole thing about um, using La Marseillaise versus the German song in that one scene. And it's just a very neat look at a very good movie.
1: I've never even heard of this.
2: It's on Netflix. And it's cool because, of course, Curtiz was possibly the most fil- famous filmmaker ever to come out of Hungary. And they really talk about his history and his origins there and how he came over to the United States and tragically what happened to his family back home. It's really neat knowing about all that history. Now, again, I do think the section with his personal life was not written as well as the Hollywood stuff and I wish they'd gone more into it. But yeah. And also, fun fact, Michael Cortez was the first ever Academy Award winner in any category from Hungary.
1: Oh, I, I, I believe it, especially back then in the early days. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, well, you know, you brought up the personal life, but I feel like on this podcast, uh, if you're focusing on, you know, the, the filmmaking aspects, and that's the greatest strength of the film, then
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think it award's a shout out for sure.
2: I would call the movie not altogether successful, but it's definitely worth checking out if you're into film history.
1: Oh, yes, which, which I am. Again, I love films about films, so this could get a 1 out of 10, and I'd still be like, hey, I'm interested. I want to see what they have to say. Uh, Curtis o- overall is, is for sure slept on as a filmmaker. Casablanca is obviously his opus, but I love like Yankee Doodle Dandy, Angels with Dirty Faces, uh, another fantastic film with with James Cagney. He did a lot of really good stuff. A lot of really good mm-hmm. stuff.
2: I think in a sense, some of his reputation was swallowed up by the Hollywood machine.
1: Yeah, it's, it's too bad because, you know, he also did The Adventures of Robin Hood, which I feel like uh, was his big American filmmaking juggernaut before Casablanca. So it, it's too bad because it sounds, you know, there are so many films of his that, are, that warrant being discussed. And you hear these films a lot, but never in context of Michael Cortese. Like you, you hear them just as great technical films or great gangster films, but you know, you never really hear his name. I think you're right in that aspect.
2: As a document about Casablanca, it's very successful. As a document about Curtiz, it could be punched up a little more.
1: So that's that's fair enough. Um, One day, Michael Curtiz will have his respect. Don't worry. One day. James, what about you? What is your film on film?
0: So before I start, I want to say I just find it amazing how no matter the topic, we always manage to pick choices that are aligned with our interests. I mean, yours mean, (laughs) yours is obviously, you know, art house, Rachel's coming through with the classic. So, of course, I got to do something that's me. So I decided to go with the film Badass, which was written and directed and starring Mario Van Peebles. And it tells oh, the story oh yeah. of his father, Melvin Van Peebles, and the trials and tribulations when he was making Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, which is one of the films that kicked off the exploitation era.
2: That is cool. I've heard of that movie, but never seen it. Can you tell us about it?
0: It's by far one of the best films of the early 2000s and one of the best biopics I've ever seen in my life. And the, it does the one thing that I think certain biopics get right. It's not a comprehensive history of his entire career, it's an isolated era of significance. And it's really interesting to see because, I mean, Mario's playing his own father, and one of the key elements. Is to show the tumultuous relationship that they've you know kind of always had, but especially during the making of this, because he was a Mario himself was around twelve or thirteen at this time, and he was actually in the movie, so this is something that is in his memory. So, yeah, it's him. He's coming off the success of his film, The Watermelon Man, which was a very successful comedy. You know, he got a, a studio deal out of it, and then when it came time to do his next film, he wanted to do something more serious. something about a a black revolutionary and the odds are against him. And it just shows all the trouble he had trying to get it made because, you know, he couldn't get traditional financing because no one wanted to touch it. He ended up, you know, the person that he got, he got somebody to finance and a lawyer for it, but the guy who was supposed to finance went to jail. So it was out and this was a few days before production. So he had to put up his own money, borrow from other places. At one point he got a $50,000 loan from Bill Cosby, to finish it and it just kind of shows this it, it shows him falling apart trying to make this because the uh, you know so many things stacked against him and you know he's starting to like you know he's starting to lose sight in one of his eyes because he's not resting and oh my god it's just yeah it's just so crazy just to see this you know what what could have failed in turn success just to see the process behind it and just just the way he approached the shooting of it and telling the story was amazing uh, it's also got a great cast you know mario himself uh rain wilson's in the movie adam west makes a cameo Neil long's in it cleo thomas who was zero in um holes he actually plays young mario
2: oh my goodness
0: yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those films, it was so under the radar. It was a critical hit, but it did not fare well commercially. But yeah, it's just so fascinating to see all these things that happen, especially, you know, because it was this, it was that film along with Shaft that came out that kind of kicked off the era. And I I kind of liken it to, it's almost like it's a exploitation equivalent to The 400 Blows and Breathless. You, know, you have the 400 blows, and it's kind of like this. It's kind of this more classically made movie, much like how Shaft is more of a Hollywood take. Where Breathless is this more esoteric, existential film, and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, it very much lean And the way it's shot and edited is very much leans towards more art house sensibilities. And then just to see, you know, kind of the unfolding on like certain things that happened, where uh, his assistant. Who ended up not being a part of the movie because her boyfriend didn't want her being in it because it you know involved like you know sexual content and nudity. Uh, she brings her boyfriend along and he's like, Oh, uh, you gotta let me uh you gotta let me play music for it. And it turns out it's Maurice White in a then-unknown Earth Wind and Fire. And yeah, so Earth Wind and Fire actually plays the music throughout the movie before they actually come out with their own record.
1: Yes, yes. It's a great soundtrack.
0: It's so great. And then there's also It has a classic penultimate scene where he finally the movie's made and he actually finds theaters a theater to play it and he tries to convince them because the way it goes is uh they shoot they typically show like a triple feature because you know people want more movie for their money and he convinces them to show it by itself and uh, throughout the beginning of the day throughout most of the day no one's showing up there's a scene where there's three people in it and one of the all three of them walk out, but there's one person in particular. And so he kind of goes to the bar and then you see kind of some more people showing up. And then there's a, and then there's a line and actually the person who does tickets comes back concerned because um, lo and behold, the group of black Panthers shows up and it turns out the first person who left was a black Panther. And he went to get more people because he actually saw the importance of what this film represented as something for the black community. And then by the end of it, just, just lines of people and he's across the street and uh You know, he's just at the bar and then the bartender is like, what are they showing over there? He looks and sees just this crowd of people. He walks in, the theater's packed. And, you know, this is a film where he literally would have lost everything and he just took the chance and made it. And I I think it's great, especially, you know, the fact that his son's telling this story years later. And it's not only a firsthand account, but it was uh, partially based on the book written that he had written, uh, his father written about it. So yeah, I just I think it's really cool, you know. Uh, to me, it's how biopics should be done, it, especially if if it's a family of filmmakers. The fact that he was like, I'm going to tell my dad's story, but also kind of show what I saw because he was there for the whole thing.
1: You know, the fact that I'm I'm reading here that Leonard Maltin, you know, the world famous beloved, you know, critic and academic voice, um, considered it one of the most underrated films ever released. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive. So, yeah, you know, as we always say, I'm going to have to check that out.
2: It's funny that you say that, Andreas, because I actually first learned about this movie as a little kid in uh, Leonard Malton's guidebook, which we bought every year at Christmas time. Really? Yeah, so it was listed, and I thought it was funny. There was a film called Badass because I was, like, eight, and yeah. <laughs>
1: there, there you go. Things come coming full circle here on the Cut. <laughs> Amazing. And speaking of uh, full circle... And, you know, in, in some way, you know, we're discussing, you know, I think it's a good thing that Badass Went Last because, you know, it's like the actual documentation of this history in such a you know interesting way. Uh, let's get into our interesting filmmaking stories that we have here, either innovative or just fascinating, you know, the, the, the film history that we have to share. Yeah, sure. Should we go same order? Okay. So for me, I really really tried to think about this one, but then there was something that I just couldn't stop thinking of and I'll forever love that, um, no pun intended, that the adaptation of the uh, nuclear war novel Red Alert by Peter George wound up being the greatest satire of all time in Dr. Strangelove or or How I Learned to Stop worrying a Love the Bomb, obviously by Stanley Kubrick. And I think the whole story behind it is just, hilarious so you know the whole thing starts off with uh, Kubrick if you're not a big Kubrick fan you might not realize that he's somebody who adapts rather than writes his own original ideas but he's known for like really turning them into his own and that couldn't have been more true here where he was reading this novel about this this nuclear attack that happened by accident and he realized you know the whole thing kind of seems like a bit of a joke like the fact that this happened, wouldn't it be a riot if we made this a comedy? And uh, this was by somebody who around this time was definitely getting this label of being a perfectionist, might I add. So, uh, you know, the horror stories that were coming out of, um, you know, Spartacus, obviously with uh, him, Kirk Douglas and Dalton Trumbo, like butting heads, the system, butting heads over this big Hollywood epic. And he started to really dive into his own his own signature style with films like Lolita around this time. So now we have Dr. Strangelove and off the film, Lolita, he was already acquainted with Peter Sellers who couldn't have been more perfect for something like this. And that was kind of the idea. Like let's, let's go the extra mile by turning this into like a satirical statement on the ineptitude of the people with, access to the biggest weapons in the world that could destroy all of our lives. How silly the whole thing is. And the original idea was to have Peter Sellers in all four of the storylines. I think he, like, hurt his leg or something, so he couldn't do the actual uh, aircraft scenes. Uh, The ones with, like, James James Earl Jones. Uh, So that's where they got Slip Pickens in. That was supposed to be a Peter Sellers role. Mm. Otherwise, he is in all of the major storylines. So... The War Room in the Pentagon. So he's in there. He's mandrake the the person who's trying to. Um Intercept all of these messages and try and effectively call off a war that shouldn't even be happening. He's obviously the titular Doctor Strange Love, which is which is hilarious. They went to extreme lengths to even like make the war room table look green, which none of us can actually see because it's a it's in black and white, so it, it has zero bearing on us, but they wanted it to look like a poker table as if they're like basically playing with our lives almost. <laughs> like, uh, who's got a good hand here? What code should we should we give? You know, there was this infamous food fight scene that was scrapped from the film. They basically went from zero to a thousand. Like, how silly can we get? And everybody was on board, uh, including Stanley Kubrick, who, again, is a famous perfectionist, but This is one of the rare times that he basically told Peter Sellers, you know what? You could improvise on the spot. Let me see what you have. So things got loosey goosey except for one person. And if you know the story, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And that's George C. Scott, (laughs) who is so – he's such a man of his craft that he rejected the Academy Awards, calling the whole thing a meat parade. So when he won for Patton, he didn't care. He was the first person to not even show up. Completely rejecting the Oscar – Um, down the road, yeah, he was just known for like, you know, if there was somebody who was an even bigger perfectionist than Kubrick, it might have been George C. Scott. So uh, to wrap up the story that, again, went from like completely serious to completely goofy and unhinged, they couldn't get him on board because he didn't want to sign up for this type of thing. He wanted to be taken seriously. So what they did was they said, look, you know, George C. Scott, we love you. We're going to do this seriously. But since we're having so much fun, can't we just do some like silly takes and see what they're like? And lo and behold, those are the takes that are in the movie where George C. Scott's barely even trying. He's like hamming it up on purpose and those are in the movie. And um, again, just perfectionist like Kubrick kept George C. Scott falling over and flubbing a line because he thought that blooper was just so perfect, tossing it in there. And, it's one of those things where he couldn't help. George C. Scott couldn't help but actually laugh at the end result and say, okay, you know what? Maybe you were right. Maybe this was better being really goofy. So uh, a lot of extremities to make one of the, the greatest silly films ever made.
2: It reminds me of the trick that uh, Kubrick used to use with the little kid in The Shining about 15 years later, where he would say, now look angry, now look sad, now look happy, and then now look scared. And they'd only use the scared takes, so the little kid didn't realize it was a scary scene.
1: Is that how he did it?
2: Apparently, that's how it went. And the kid didn't even know it was a horror film until much, much later. And he finally saw it and was like, oh, okay.
1: See, that I knew, but I didn't really know how he got away with it. So that's, that's, yeah. I mean, when he's not being a bit of a monstrous filmmaker, uh, Kubrick was really good. Really good at getting exactly what he wanted.
2: Well, I also have a troubled production.
1: Uh Uh-oh, okay. It's
2: uh, maybe a film neither of you have seen. I'd I'd be really surprised because it's kind of rare. I haven't seen it. I don't really want to. It's called Traitor Horn, and it is the story of actress Edwina Booth and one of the worst productions of all time.
1: Never heard of this. Do tell. All
2: right. It's 1931, still pre-code. We're just getting into the talkies, and Edwina Booth is a young up-and-coming actress. She's not quite at full stardom yet, but she's getting there. She's got everything ahead of her. So... They decide that as a gimmick, they're going to make a movie about Africa. And instead of filming on a set, as was pretty common in that time, this will be the first ever non-documentary to be made on location in Africa. They filmed in a couple of different countries. I think Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania. And they even filmed a couple of scenes in Mexico to get around American animal cruelty laws as everything was terrible in the 30s. So... They got to Africa, they did the filming, and it was awful from beginning to end. Everyone got malaria, the entire cast. Two crew people died, one from being eaten by a crocodile, one from being charged by a rhino. Everybody what? got, like, every single disease possible. The production took over a year. Um wow. And in the end, they got a Best Picture nomination, but... Uh, what sure year it was this? It. 1931.
1: Okay, that explains a lot. I was like... How could anything like this have have been nominated? Yeah. And like, Oh my God. There
2: were swarms of flies everywhere. And so, yeah, it was pretty bad. And the movie, when you read the synopsis, it's absolutely terrible. I don't want to see it and I don't recommend anybody else should. It just sounds stupid and problematic and awful.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, that was the case back then.
2: In this, in its day, it was a great success. But then you've got Edwina Booth. So she's on the set. She was sick with like everything possible. She got malaria, dysentery, and her health was so bad. She sued the production company, MGM, and she did pretty well, I think. Got a settlement and then escaped Hollywood. I think she had done a couple more roles by this point, but she's like, you know what? I am never going to do this again. And she never, ever talked about her Hollywood days later. She became very active in her religion and she married and it just sounded like she had gotten away from it all. But the trouble was, since she wasn't making movies, since she wasn't appearing in the press, everyone just started to assume that she had died on the set of the movie. I don't know how this came about since she had sued MGM and it probably would have been in the press, but this became a kind of urban legend after a few years. Oh yeah, that production that was so bad, they killed the actress with, they called it Bill Harsey at the time, but it's actually schistosomiasis, a parasite. There's some debate as, as to whether she got that or malaria, but either way, she didn't die of it. She lived until 1991, a full 60 years after this film was released. So she never even came out to correct the record, probably just wanting to get away from it all, I guess. But Catherine Hepburn would later, of course, be in The African Queen, which was also filmed on location in what was then the Belgian Congo. And so she repeated both on the Dick Cavett show in 1973 and in 1991 in her autobiography or no 1987 in her book about the making the African queen that Edwina Booth had died of this parasite from filming this from filming this movie. It was not true. The woman was alive and living and just going on with her life somewhere else. But Catherine Hepburn falsely reported her dead twice. She finally died uh, Edwina Booth in 1991 she had had he- lifelong health complications and lost her career over this awful movie. And she had been mistakenly killed off by the press. So that is the story of Trader Horn.
1: This is one of the craziest things when it comes to like filmmaking stories I think I've ever heard. That's bonkers.
2: I think Hollywood invo- uh, owes everybody involved in that movie a giant apology.
1: Oh, my God. Well, one of these days, I do hope to cover and watch every single Best Picture nominee. So I guess I'm going to have to get to this one. But you're right. This concept, I don't even want to repeat it. It sounds repugnant, which I'm not surprised because you know what won Best Picture in 1931?
2: Was it Cimarron?
1: Yep, Cimarron, which itself has major issues with sexism and racism. So I'm not surprised that Trader Horn. oh my god, is up against it.
2: And it was remade in 1973. It was what? It was remade in 1973, but I think they- took Oh, out. Cimarron. No, no, uh, Trader Horn.
1: Oh, Trader Horner was remade as well? Yeah,
2: I, I don't know if it oh. took out those elements, but it was... And then there was this exploitation film I'm finding on Google called Trader Horny around the same time, so...
0: Oh, Never come on. It. Oh, of course.
1: <laughs> oh, my my God. This is, like, the gift that just keeps on giving. I <laughs> I, I, yeah. I went from not knowing this film to knowing too much about it. <laughs> 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 this is wild.
2: Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I just feel so bad for Edwina Booth and all of this.
1: Oh, my God, this whole... Wow. I don't I don't even know how to segue from that. Uh um jeez. Please uh do you have anything to match this, James?
0: No. <laughs> mine's mine's a little bit more subtle. It's actually more of a um kind of more of a a business thing than a production thing. Okay. In 2013, when Steven Soderbergh first announced that he was retiring, which didn't last long. He did this speech called The State of Cinema. It's actually a really great speech. It's online. At least I I think it's still online. And there's a part of his speech where he talks about one time a colleague asked him to check out this movie that was doing really well on the festival circuit, but was having trouble finding distribution. So he checks out the movie. He said, you know, credits roll, lights go on. And at that moment, he thought independent film was over. Because he could not believe that no one was willing to pick up and distribute this film. That film was Christopher Nolan's Memento.
2: Oh my goodness. Mm.
0: And in the midst of all this, New Market Films, which had only been a financing and production company, actually became a distributor to distribute this film. And from that went on to just be a full-time distributor. So it's really fascinating because you have this you know, early 2000s art house masterpiece and no one wants it so much so that one of the companies involved in financing a production had to create their own distribution firm to put this movie out. And I think that says a lot about the business.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately that's commonplace where um, some of these little miniature companies will exist just for the uh, the course of a film and then just fold just so they can have like this, this means of being launched because other companies won't, won't fund this or distribute them.
0: Yeah. Well, Newmarket actually, you know, ended up finding success. You know, they, they, you know, they, they distributed a number of films. They distributed, they're the ones who, who distribute Donnie Darko. They have like a whole filmography of stuff that they distributed. But before that they weren't, you know, into distribution. It was just production and finance. And then they saw this. They're like, no one wants it. We're going to put it out. And then, You know, that really catapulted Christopher Nolan to the stratosphere and led to where he is now. And, you know, it's just, it's really amazing because this happens with smaller films. You know, it wasn't made for much. It was made for $4.5 I mean, there's, you know, it's always an industry thing where they say it's easier to sell a $100 million film than it is a million dollar film, which is just insane to me because you could easily make a profit off of a million dollar film, but no one wants to take the risks of that.
2: And it's not like Christopher Nolan was ever successful after that.
0: <laughs> no, no.
1: Guy was wasn't even an Oscar nominee for the longest time. I mean, gee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: it's just I, I just thought that was a fun fact. It's it's just interesting because you know that whole speech though. You know, he he kind of goes into that where it's you know you it doesn't take much money to create a lot of great things with really talented artists, but just with the way the industry is, they they go for these you know massive projects that a lot of them fail. You know, how often, you know, 150, 200 million movie could easily bomb at the box office, if not, you know, one's made for more bombing. And then they just take the loss.
1: I think it's interesting that you did go last, actually, because I feel like this and and your pick, Rachel, almost kind of fit hand in hand really nicely. Because, you know, it's evident since the beginning of the industry that perhaps not everything that the system funded all this money into was a worthy investment in the case of Trader Horn for instance um there's zero legacy there uh not for good reasons anyway um yeah critically you know the the, the film looks abhorrent uh an idea something like this which nobody wanted to touch yet has been um consistently considered one of the greatest films of the 2000s so that's the problem with this being an industry as opposed to like an art farm. But unfortunately, art doesn't cut it. You, you, you know, you got to
0: you got to get funding. Right. So it's, it's just sad. And the sad thing is the kind of the more arts yourself can make money. Blumhouse proves this with Get Out the amount of money marginally that get out made and split made when they both came out, or just the fact that they make cheap movies and hit, you know, the black by the end of opening day and make a profit in the weekend. Or just like, you know, take a look at, look at the excessive, like baby driver. You know, there's an audience for all these smaller kinds of films. We don't need like a, you know, these big extravagant effects laden films to make money or be entertained. But yet that's the direction they constantly go.
1: Absolutely. Well, in the direction that we are going to go, um, we're going to wrap things up here with our weekly recommendations. But before we do that, especially if you have some more, you know, aspects of the whole uh, Trader Horn story uh, and you want to send them to us, uh, Rachel, where can our listeners find us?
2: We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under the K-Cut. We like to post little tidbits about film, especially in our stories. So come join us there. And for Cinematic board this month, which we are recording next week, we are going to be watching Pie, Au Revoir Les Enfants, and um, the one, The Piano, one of my favorite movies of all time. And then our collective pick is Tokyo Fist.
1: Fantastic. Alrighty, who wants to give their first random recommendation? Let's go back same order. Okay, so um, this isn't... Uh... Oh, what the hell. My favorite film of all time when it comes to, you know, just the film industry. So, you know, if Dave Night* is my favorite film about actual filmmaking, my favorite film when it comes to just film and Hollywood, 1,000%, and it's such an obvious pick, has to be Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, which is um, arguably one of the greatest noir films of all time, uh, if not the greatest, and is just a bittersweet magnificent portrayal of what it's like to be shunned by the same industry that made you and, um, you know, all of the transitions from the silent era to the talkies and a very interesting commentary on the industry whilst also being a love letter. So it's, uh, it's scathing, but also enamored with the film, with the filmmaking experience of Hollywood.
2: Okay. Well, I am going to go with hail Caesar and,
0: Oh, so good.
2: Yeah, it's a fictional filmmaking uh, scenario, but it's just so much about the Hollywood machine, and it's got all these archetypes that you recognize if you're into film history and all kinds of film nerd jokes. Um, I went went to a screening, and it was me and two classmates from the program Andreas and I did, and we were the only ones laughing for 90% of the movie. It's got what I think is George Clooney's best performance, and yes, I will stand by that, as well as this amazing cast of characters. Not the best Coen Brothers movie, my favorite Coen Brothers movie.
1: Wow, well,
0: that's that is a good movie. Some,
1: that is some high praise.
0: I like the movie because it's like it, it's about the industry, but more specifically, the main character he's the, he's the dude behind the scenes who has to play damage control.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. we all know somebody like that.
0: Yeah, and it's not so much
1: about we need to find George Clooney or whatever. It's just the bigger picture, which I think a lot of critics missed out on when it first came out. Like, mm-hmm. we're not. It's kind of like Inherit Vice. We're not following this story. Of this case, we're looking at the world that this person lives in. So, in Inherent Feist's case, it's like this miasma of, of I think it was Los Angeles, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and here, it's um, it's the Hollywood system and just these sets that this uh, that this uh, sleuth, this gumshoe, finds himself in. And um, yeah, it's it's a bigger picture type thing. So, yeah, you you can't go wrong with the coins.
2: Would that it was so simple.
0: So I guess I'm next. Uh, it's funny you bring up Hail, Caesar, because mine is actually a Coen Brothers movie as well. I decided to go with Barton Fink? Yes, Barton Fink. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, set in 1941, it stars John Testerow as a young New York City playwright who is hired to write scripts for a film studio in Hollywood. It also stars John Goodman as an insurance salesman who lives next door at this um, rundown hotel. And I like it because it kind of modernized views of classic Hollywood are interesting, but the fact that they put their own little spin on it and John Turturro's performance as this kind of like neurotic recluse kind of thrown into the system and he starts to kind of go crazy, but it's also critically, it did really well. It won three awards at the Cannes Film Festival. It won the Palme d'Or, best director and best actor.
2: That's amazing. So that almost never happens, right?
0: I think they actually made a rule that you can't win like that many awards (laughs) after that wow
2: nice job breaking the system coen brothers
0: yeah it's just it's it's definitely one of their best films it's definitely i it's i don't know it's one of my favorites i definitely recommend it to anybody
1: yeah it's uh for any of us who have ever procrastinated or like had writer's block it is the ultimate allegory of what it feels like to be like an hour before the deadline being like oh my god i can't get this finished (laughs) that's what it feels like it's i love barton fink Alrighty, so thank you so much for listening. That was the K-Cut, and uh, tune in next week where we are, as Rachel alluded to, doing our cinematic smorgasbord. Uh, For now, uh, we are going into the alt cut